and welcome to the Old Man Sailing Podcast. I'm John Passmore and today we're going to go on an expedition. We're going to meet Captain Calamity and a good deal of mud. We've even got a bit of racing for you as well. I will uh, mention health very briefly today because I'm going to spend a little more time talking about money. Uh, the reason for that is that I've just heard that an awful lot of people are selling their cars because they can no longer afford the car insurance. And the average household is now spending £500 a month more than they were this time last year. So I think we do need to talk about money. But first of all, let's take a look at what I like to call amp starvation. This is the scene in Samsara's cabin tonight. Candlelight. I appear to have run out of electricity. Well, not really, of course. The engine battery is still raring to go at 12.8 volts, but I can't touch that. Who knows when I may need to start the engine in an emergency. Meanwhile, the service battery, the lights, the phone charger, the rechargeable DAB radio, the laptop on which I am writing this, that's where the amps drain away. If I was going somewhere, this wouldn't happen. I would have the water turbine trailing out behind, pumping in the amps. You can see it in action on the video on the Good Health page. But that's no good without water flowing past the boat at more than three knots, and all we get in Kirby Creek is half a knot of tide at the height of the ebb. I do have the solar panel, which I left tilted backwards on the assumption that the stern would be pointing southeast when the sun came up. Sure enough, when I looked before breakfast, we were getting a steady two amps, but I'm afraid I was profligate with my current and spent the morning charging the radio and writing up yesterday's fishing expedition. You can't see it yet because I'm going to show it to my neighbour, the fishing companion. I never did that when I worked for a newspaper. Anyway, the BBC forecast was for a moderate wind in the afternoon, and I hoisted the generator in the rigging with the propeller in place of the wind turbine. The trouble is that it needs 15 knots before it starts turning at all, and by the time it was too dark to see, the battery was on its last legs at 11.5 volts and still draining 1.1 amps. I went round turning off lights, unplugged the phone. Still negative figures. Where was it going? Of course, the masthead light comes on at dusk and helps itself to 0.2 amps. Well, I knew what to do about that. Out came the trusty hurricane lamp. I had one of these on my first boat, and well remember my father's ritual with the anchor light at dusk. It is rather academic in Kirby Creek. The last of the lit boys is down Hampford Water at the junction with the Walton Channel, the best part of a mile away. Who's going to come up here on a pitch-black night like this in half a gale? Hang on. Who said there was half a gale blowing? Last time I looked, there wasn't enough to squeeze out a tenth of an amp. Suddenly, now the battery is sucking up 1.1. I poke my head out of the hatch. The boat is heeling under bare pole. The anchor light has blown out, but who cares? I reckon there's enough to fire up the phone and ping this off to WordPress. The Expedition 
Everywhere I look, I see land. Rather muddy land, admittedly, but here, half a mile further up Fairby Creek, surrounded by saltings and winding water, with only the birds and the seals for company, I am as protected as I can be. Last night we had a bit of wind, and it barely raised a wave big enough to slap against the hull. We did heel over as a gust caught the mast and revved up the wind generator. The coffee pot fell off the cooker, but otherwise Samsara stayed as rock-steady as if she had been chucked up in a boatyard. This was all because of the expedition. It's now a week since I arrived here, and the water tanks ran dry on Thursday night. I have another 30 litres in cans and a couple of emergency bottles, and what with that and running out of apples, the time has come to go and find civilization. Round here, the village of Kirby Lisokan fits that bill. It has a pub and a shop and, presumably, a water tap. All I had to do was take the dinghy up to the head of the creek where, apparently, there is a key accessible at high tide. Uh, that was going to be at 12.34 yesterday, and so I set off at about 1100, properly dressed in wet weather gear with all the gash and empty water cans and Google Maps on my phone to stop me following the wrong branch of the creek. For some inexplicable reason, the outboard engine wouldn't start. Odd, that. Now that it has a new fuel tap, it's been very reliable. Maybe all it needs is a moment to cool down. Two strokes are funny like that. I started rowing. An hour later, after several stops to try the engine again, during which I drifted backwards into the mud, and a seal, with its head out of the water like a Labrador with no ears, watched silently, as if wondering what on earth I was doing. Actually, what I was doing was checking Google Maps and realising that after an hour of hard rowing, I was still only halfway, which meant that at this rate, by the time I got there, walked up to the village and back carrying 30 kilos of water, and with the shopping on my back, the tide would be falling fast. What if I ran aground on a falling tide? marooned for eight hours in a dinghy surrounded by thigh-deep mud. Some things just don't seem sensible. I admitted defeat and turned round. Of course, this meant rowing against the tide. I remember thinking that I was earning my lunch and calculated how long it was since breakfast and come to that how long since I had drunk half a litre of vitamin and mineral supplement and a large cup of coffee. And how it is that one of life's more undignified manoeuvres is peeing when you are in a tiny inflatable dinghy and dressed up in chest-high waterproof salopettes. Casting around for a solution, I spied a jetty. Well, a haphazard collection of old timbers sticking out of the mud with a few rotting planks on top. It would have to do. Somewhat gingerly, I stepped ashore and walked up the staging to what passed on Horsey Island for solid ground. I know all about Horsey Island. It is privately owned and a bird sanctuary. No landing allowed. 
In fact, Tamsin and I came here in 1995 and interviewed the owner, Joe Backhouse. That was when we were writing about our adventures for the Daily Telegraph's travel pages. This might very well have been the spot where Blue the dog disgraced himself by catching a Brent goose. I don't know who was more surprised. The place didn't seem to have changed. It was just as desolate as I remembered. In fact, having dealt with the urgent matter at hand, I took out my phone and recorded a quick 360 for Instagram. You can see it on john.passmore.756. As uh, you can see, I told the commentary, absolutely nobody about. Totally desolate. That was when I noticed I wasn't alone. An equally old man with a white beard and a woolly hat arrived with two plastic bags. I think I should be congratulated on finding something to say. This was it. Oh, hello. I've just stopped for a pee. I hope you don't mind. I'm afraid I can't remember what he said in reply. Would you? But he did ask me if that was my boat anchored further down the creek. You can't anchor there, he said. That's an oyster bed. Really? I didn't know about that. There's nothing in the books about it. There's a sign, he said. I peered. A sign? I didn't see it. Where is it? It blew away. Ah. But he did suggest I should move to one of the vacant moorings. Anyway, you wouldn't want to be here tonight. There's a Force 9 coming through tonight. And with that, he climbed into the ancient dinghy he had brought with him and rode away across the creek, gesturing as he went towards an enormous orange mooring boy and shouting, You can take that one! The boat that's usually on it just came out for the winter. So that's where we are, in a deep hole surrounded by shallow water. We'll never get out except at high tide and the shallow water is in turn surrounded by soggy but protective land. All I need now is for the outboard to work tomorrow. I just rang my friend David the fisherman who helped me catch the herring and a brace of whiting. He tells me that I'll get water at the pub. If I ever get there, I think I might deserve more than water. A while ago, I introduced you to Captain Calamity, the disreputable old man in his dreadful old boat navigating their way down the coast with the help of an out-of-date AA road map. Ever since, I have been acutely aware of the danger of casting myself in the same role. Like, for instance, going aground at the top of the highest tide for the next ten days, which is what happened today. If you've been keeping up, you will know about the abortive expedition to fetch water from the pub at Kirby Lesokan, trespassing for a pee on Horsey Island and the Beware Oyster Bed sign, which had blown away. Anyway, yesterday I went round to the marina on the pretext of replacing an empty gas cylinder and filled the water tanks while I was at it. And while I was at it, 
My fisherman friend David, with his permanently damp dog, phoned to ask whether I could possibly help him investigate a leak in his heat exchanger. It was awkwardly right underneath the engine, and he thought I was more nimble than he was. It was arranged that I would go back to Kirby Creek today, which of course is where I must take the big orange mooring boy and not anchor in the middle of the oyster bed, even though David, who has lived there all his life, says there haven't been any oysters in the creek for years, and they only say that because they don't want any more moorings. I could see the orange boy as I felt my way down the channel between Horsey Island and Skipper's Island, the Navionics app on my phone pointing the way. I have great faith in Navionics. The other day I trusted Google Maps to find me the way to Kirby Key, and it got me just as lost as Captain Calamity with his AA map. Last time I came this way, I had left Honeypot Island to starboard, but there was more water then, and Navionics seemed to suggest the other way round. There was some moorings there. It made sense. And that was where we came sliding gently to a halt. First I put the engine in reverse and wound her up to full throttle. No joy. Then I started hanging off the shrouds, hoping to heal the boat to reduce the draft. Next I waited a bit in the hope the tide might rise further. After fifteen minutes it was clear that desperate measures were called for. If you don't take desperate measures when you have the chance, you'll wish you had when it's too late. I broke out the kedge anchor, inflated the dinghy, added fifteen metres of warp to the twenty on it already, and rode the lot across to the other side of the creek. Then, with the engine flat out astern and the warp on the sheet winch, I stirred up a lot of muddy water and went precisely nowhere. The tide was still flooding, but Samsara seemed to be welded to the bottom. The only saving grace was that the creek was utterly deserted. My ignominy was as yet a secret. Of course, it wouldn't be a secret if I was here for ten days. They would put up grandstands and sell tickets as the boat dried out downhill and filled with mud and water as the tide rode and she stayed on the bottom. From time to time I switched off the engine and waited. Eventually I transferred the anchor warp from the stern to the bow and got it on the electric anchor windlass. There was a moment of euphoria when the boat began to turn. But would she go forward? No, she would not. Not by so much as a blade of grass in the transit across the soldings. I began to think of calling for help. But what did I expect? Already I had a warp that was bar taut. No launch was going to be able to do better than that. By this time, High tide was ten minutes away, and I was beginning to consider what would happen if I just left her there for the winter. Uh, at this stage I hadn't checked the almanac, and somehow had it fixed in my head that this was the highest tide until the spring equinox. Without any great hopes of a different result, I tried more of the same, revving the engine, winding the anchor back through the mud. I put the helm hard over to line up with the anchor, with the prop wash flowing over the rudder, Samsara heeled obediently to starboard and went nowhere. 
I switched tacks and put her hard over to port. Was that a movement? There was definitely a rocking motion. Agonizingly slowly, we began to wriggle through the mud. You could almost hear the sucking noises as the creek bed released its grip on the keel. Quickly, before anything else could go wrong, I recovered the 50 metres of warp and tied a fender to the remaining 20 metres. I can go back for the anchor tomorrow. We were free, indeed. I am writing this anchored defiantly in six metres in the middle of the non-existent oyster bed and thinking that there was, in fact, one other weapon in my armoury. I could have attached the spinnaker halyard to the anchor warp and heeled the boat to 30 degrees, dragging her off that way. Would the higher angle have pulled the anchor out of the mud? Not with that length of warp, surely. Maybe that will be one for next time. If there is a next time. Don't worry, Sod's Law demands it. Now, I promise you a very brief health announcement today, and so, if there's anything at all wrong with you, if you've been going to your doctor and you don't seem to be getting any better, then take a look at the blog, oldmansailing.com, and click on the Good Health page. Have a look and see what's there. Meanwhile, we left Captain Calamity thinking that he had won the battle with the mud. Not necessarily so. In the rigging, the foul weather gear drips beige water onto the deck. The dinghy floats obediently astern, looking as though it has just come out of its box. And in the cockpit locker, the cage anchor sits snug in its stowage, with the chain and warp flaked into the canvas bag, awaiting the next emergency. I hope it's a long time coming. I've had enough of the Kedge for a while. All this started with the non-existent oyster bed and the big orange mooring boy, which you have just heard about the other day. At the end of that slice of embarrassment, we left the Kedge on the bottom with a fender marking the spot. Ever since then, I've been trying to rescue it. Since it was quite clear that pulling it up from the dinghy was never going to work, plan B was to use Samsara's famously buoyant bow to exert the pull. All I had to do was to get it over the anchor, keep the stern straight with the line to a buoy, and reverse off, pulling the wretched thing with us. There was only one flaw to this plan. The anchor, which I had set with the idea that it was somehow going to pull me off into deep water, was not in deep water at all. Maybe I'm being naive, but since it wasn't far from a mooring by, I sort of imagined that that would indicate a reasonable depth. Instead, the recovery attempt stopped a good 20 metres short as the keel met the bottom all over again. Never mind. Plan C was to tie the warp to a spinnaker halyard to increase the angle and trick the anchor into thinking the pull was coming from above. This idea was brilliant. The boat dipping forward 
and the anchor popping out with the sort of sound eight-year-old boys make with their fingers in their cheeks. Not so. That will only work if the pull is exactly over the bow, a couple of degrees off, and the boat just heals, and of course gets dragged further over the shallows. By the time we were at 30 degrees, and things in the cabin were falling over, this seemed like a very bad idea. Time for Plan D. I was not looking forward to Plan D. It came under the heading of Last Resorts and involved going over there to dig for the anchor. I knew, with great foreboding, this was going to be messy. One option was to do it wearing next to nothing, or even nothing at all since Walton Backwaters is proving to be one of the most desolate places on earth. However, there are only five weeks to Christmas. Maybe full protective clothing was a better idea. My top-of-the-range foul-weather gear and Southern Ocean gloves. Also, I would need something to dig with. At least in that department I was prepared. Samsara carries a shovel. Well, she carries one of those little scoops that used to tuck into the back of Edwardian coal scuttles. I use it for doling out charcoal for the stove. So, fully equipped at nine o'clock in the morning, an hour before low water, I plunged into the mud, up to my knees. You know those stories you hear about people getting stuck in the mud and the tide coming in and drowning them? That's what I was thinking about as I discovered that the more I tried to pull one leg out, the more the other drove itself deeper into the goo. By the time I was up to my thighs, it was obvious there had to be a better way. There was. I remember seeing it years ago on those huge mud flats in the Bristol Channel. Mud horses the sledge-like contraptions fishermen use to get out to their nets. The horse supports the man's weight while he pushes with his feet. The dinghy could be my mud horse. It was brilliant. I scooted up the slope in no time at all. I found the fender, found the chain. Taking the trusty shovel, I began to dig. You remember I said the shovel came from a coal scuttle? that I had used it for charcoal. What I should have packed was a garden spade. With the first scoop of mud, the shovel bent at right angles. There was nothing for it. I would have to dig with my bare hands, or rather with Messrs. Gill's very expensive leather and Gore-Tex helmsman's gloves. But what did it matter? By that time, the even more expensive Henry Lloyd offshore suit was the colour of cappuccino. I found the fortress about 30 centimetres down, clearly headed for Australia. Down there, the mud was a serious blue-grey colour and the consistency of potter's clay. There was no other way this was coming up without the shank going vertical. It was one hell of an advert for an anchor. It took me another three hours to get cleaned up, a matter of endless buckets of water and going round and round the dinghy, the topsides, the deck, the cockpit, and of course myself, again and again, 
until everything ran clear. Well, this being the East Coast, which is four parts mud to six parts water, beige is the best you can hope for. The Test Long ago, I decided that if I was going to live on a boat, then it had to be all the year round. Otherwise, it would just feel like a holiday. Admittedly, I still have family commitments, so I shall be going home this week for ten days, and then again over Christmas and New Year. But the house in Woodridge is beginning to feel like a place to visit, whereas life aboard Samsara is rapidly becoming home. And today I have had my first taste of what that means. It was, in a sense, a test. The forecast was 25 knot winds, a real winter chill of 3 degrees centigrade, and driving sleet. In fact, when I woke at 8.30 with the boat heeling to 30 knot gusts whipping across Curvy Creek, the thermometer above the chart table registers 7 degrees centigrade. This seemed encouraging until I considered that it probably had something to do with the fug released by unzipping two sleeping bags, one inside the other. But who needs to get up at 8.30 on a day like today? I climbed back in, taking with me the Kindle and Neil Hawksford's A Fuelish Voyage. Incidentally, this book is staying in my library, along with Martessier's The Long Way. Even though it's self-published and largely unknown, I think it's up there with the great sailing books. Just like Martessier, Hawksford digs deep into his emotions. Here is a man who spent his whole life wanting nothing more than to live on a boat and go sailing, and eventually he managed it. I can relate to that. I've just written a glowing review and downloaded the sequel. In the end, of course, I did have to get up. I mean, you can't stay in bed all day, can you? Even if there's no parent to come barging into your bedroom with a basket full of adult responsibility. Even if you're so grown up yourself that you've retired and really don't have to do anything ever again. So I emerged for a second time at 10.30 and found the cabin still wasn't any warmer. For a moment, I hankered after one of those automatic forced-air central heating systems where you poke one finger out from under the duvet, push a button, and wait for the boat to reach a sensible temperature. Of course, I could have roused myself to get up and light the charcoal stove, but that seemed like a slippery slope. Pretty soon I would have it running all day as well as all evening and while matters might yet come to that, I don't want to start down the wimpy route until I have to. The answer was to keep moving. Without going outside into the cold and wind, that meant rubbing down the bulkhead ready for painting and clearing up all the dust which it produced, carving a new knob for the head's door. You can imagine the kind of thing. It got me as far as a late lunch and a second cup of tea, but after sitting still for an hour finishing the book, seven degrees didn't seem so homely any more. I lit the stove at 3.30. By 9.30 in the evening, I was sitting so close to it that I was beginning to singe. By 
I was back in the two sleeping bags, now with Hawksford's second book, A Foolish Odyssey. Odd, really, but I wouldn't swap places with anyone. How much does it cost to live on a boat? Look around any harbour and you will find young couples on tiny warm catamarans, old men on gaffers held together with string, and, of course, those gleaming fifty-footers weighed down with watermakers, air conditioning, and all the latest electronics. But whether you consider yourself well off or just getting by, you must have some money coming in. Some people chronicle their lives on YouTube, but for everyone who is given a free boat, there are thousands who never cover the cost of the GoPro. Others stop periodically and get a job. Three months of hard work will fund a year of economy-class cruising. If you have read my story, you will see that my first attempt at the cruising life was back in the 90s, funded by journalism, a column for the London Daily Telegraph, another for Yachting World, bits and pieces here and there. I wrote a column, I got paid. And if I wanted to get paid again, I had to write another column. It went on for years. I thought I was a success. I was living the dream. Now I realize I was just lucky it kept going as long as it did. I was working for what is called a linear income. You work once, you get paid once. If you stop work, you don't get paid. Worse than that, I was beholden to my boss. If the boss decided he preferred somebody else's column, I would be out of a job. Even if he liked mine but the magazine started losing money, he would be sorry but would have to let me go. And that is how most people earn a living, going from month to month and trusting it will just keep going. Hardly anybody thinks about what life would be like if the money came in every month without them having to work for it, what is called a residual income. That is what you get from investments or property. Pop stars and best-selling authors have residual incomes from the work they did in the past. It was not until 2005 that I discovered there was another way of getting hold of a residual income, even without having a lot of money or a remarkable talent. By this time, Tamsin and I had realized that life on a small boat with two small boys was just too much like hard work. We got off and moved into a house. Within a few years, with nothing unusual to write about anymore, the journalism dried up. My savings were gone. I was obliged to start looking for a job. Any job. At 55, they don't give you another job. But that was when I got properly lucky. Someone gave me a leaflet about building up a residual income in a small amount of spare time. It sounded like a scam, one of those dodgy schemes they warn you about. But remember, I was desperate. I would look at anything. I looked at this. 
I checked the company's stock exchange performance, researched the chairman's track record. I crawled all over that opportunity as if it was a gold mine I had stumbled into. Best of all, not only was there the prospect of the residual income down the line, but there was money up front as well. In fact, now it's really good money, as much as most people earn from a full-time job. Also, I didn't have to sell anything. I was just showing people how to pay less for what they were already buying. I grasped it with both hands. I went at it as if my life depended on it, which, in a sense, it did. And the work I did then is still paying me today. If I never do another stroke, never write another word, if I fall off the boat and drown, the money from that work will still come in every month for Tamsin. And it will be enough for her to live in comfort for the rest of her life. In due course, it will form part of her estate and go to the children. So tell me, which is best? A linear income or a residual income? What would you do with the rest of your life if you had enough money dropping into your bank account regular as clockwork every month just like that? If you have a UK address and would like to sail full-time or do anything else come to that, have a look at the five-minute video presentation on the money page of my blog at oldmansailing.com. That is today's equivalent of the leaflet that I was given in 2005. If you like what you see, there's a number there for Ashil Dwarkadas, my colleague, because I'll be sort of busy, too busy to help you on a day-to-day -day basis. And I may not always have a mobile phone signal, but Ashil will always be there. And of course, he knows much more about it now because I'm a little bit out of touch. If you have a home in the UK and you just want to save money and make life simpler by bundling all your home services together, you can see how all that works at the other link on that page. And most important of all, remember that when Eric and Susan Hiscock set off on their first circumnavigation in 1952, on the bulkhead of Wanderer 3 were carved the wise words of Arthur Ransom. Grab a chance, and you won't be sorry, for the might have been. And now this from The Good Stuff, Book 1. Not the Fastnet. We didn't do the Fastnet this year. Well, considering the way things turned out, it's not surprising. With hearty ocean racers streaming into pools swearing never again, with bits falling off million-pound boats designed for Cape Horn, it wasn't really a race for cruising men looking for a bit of excitement. Cruising men could feel proud of their common sense as they listened to the forecast offering a 50% chance of a Force 9, and then make plans to spend the week turning out the garage instead. But cruising men who didn't even get past the first qualifying race 
who'd retired ignominiously two months before the start, they can only blame someone else. It really wasn't my fault, not to begin with. When Woodgate's first suggested it, I said no with all the conviction of Captain Bly on the subject of a workers' cooperative. I mean, the Fastnet's big league stuff. Look what happened in 1979. The Fastnet is no picnic, which of course is precisely the attraction for Woodgate's, who crewed for Robin Knox Johnson and, I suspect, has been sleeping in his musto ocean racing outfit ever since. But Largo is no British Airways. And while she's capable of completing the Fastnet, we would likely arrive in Plymouth when all the parties were over, which is hardly the object of the exercise. It was a wonderful idea, but not really practical. The trouble with ideas like that is that once they become practical, they're very difficult to discard. Like, for instance, when we were offered the loan of an offshore One Design 34, a boat of such staggering performance that Woodgate's lying awake at nights in his mustos started rehearsing victory speeches. From that point on, there really was no hope for us. I wrote to the Royal Ocean Racing Club. I outlined in modest terms our enormous experience and suggested that we might be allowed to compete after doing only one qualifying race instead of two. The man from the ROC wrote back. He could see how highly experienced we were, but rules were rules. So we picked out a couple of races from the programme and I made my next appalling error of judgment. We'll need a couple of extra bods, I said. We'll need a crew of seven, said Woodgates. Seven? On a thirty-four-foot boat, where would we put them all? What would they do? With two of us on the triangle race, I had occasionally found the boat rather crowded. The year before that, I went to Spain all on my own, which really is the only way to keep the companionway clear. The idea of seven didn't bear thinking about. Woodgates was adamant. He produced a four-deck hand with the experience of OODs, who could be relied upon to insist that nine would not be too many. We compromised. This was, after all, only the first qualifying race, just a quick spin down to Portland and back. It wasn't as if we were going to have to organise watches and what have you. So there would be four of us as well as me and Woodgates. We would be joined by Bill Cross, who has a moody 29 and the sort of competitive instinct that makes him worry about the performance of his furling Jenny. And there would be Dick Durham. Normally, Dick would not dream of being seen on anything built after 1930, but someone had told him about the parties. Everything was organised. We would pick up the boat on the Thursday morning and have two full days to get used to her before the start. Somehow I had the idea that those two days would be filled with relentless spinnaker drills. I had this notion that hundreds of square feet of nylon would be shooting up and down the mast like Nelson's signal flags. I had visions of us jibing it down the length of the Solent until the manoeuvre went off with the kind of wordless efficiency I always imagined you find on Admiral's cup boats. I was wrong again. 
First, I got stuck in Belgium on a story, which at least offered me the interesting diversion of seeing my work disrupt my sailing, rather than the other way round, and then the boat wasn't ready. The wonderful high-performance racer, which was going to whisk us to victory, was still ashore, without its mast, and all our plans, not to mention Woodgate's speech, looked like coming to nothing. Quite what happened over the next twenty-four hours, I was never quite sure. I do remember stuffing foreign coins into foreign telephone boxes, only to hear Woodgate shouting, Don't worry, everything's going to be fine. Usually he says this shortly before disaster strikes. The owner of the mastless landbound racer said, Don't worry, everything's going to be fine. He'd arranged for us to borrow another OOD. We picked it up on the Friday at lunchtime. It wasn't our fault that the start was on Saturday morning, but perhaps we should have realised what it means to sail a proper racing boat. It had nine winches. What can anyone possibly want with nine winches? Woodgate suggested that that was one for each member of the crew, but since there had been some confusion over the arrangements, and Durham was at that moment pottering about on his floating antique in Leon Sea, we had three winches apiece. Somehow, relentless spinnaker drills didn't seem so important to a crew who had never in their lives reefed without benefit of a topping lift. We were completely taken by surprise when the mainsail came down and promptly fell over the side instead of saying obediently in its track. And what can you say about three full-grown men standing on the foredeck discussing what the adjustable baby stay might be for? But what we lacked in experience, we made up in confidence. In cows, we tied up alongside another OOD, with nine people standing on each other's toes, politely waiting their turn at the companionway. You'll be working hard, said the skipper squinting down the hatch and assuming we must have some more down there somewhere. No problem, I said, we'll just take it slowly. It's not as if we need to win. And then we went off to dinner at Murray's, where we covered the table with entry forms, which invited us to describe how we intended to cut loose the rig in the event of a dismasting, and then asked, are you sure? Believe me, we weren't sure of anything. Probably out of the lot of us, I was the most confused. I'd never sailed a strange boat in my life. I hadn't even taken one of those bareboat charters in the Mediterranean, the ones with lissom creatures fixed to the foredeck like the anchor in chocks. No, I was having trouble. Mostly, I was having trouble with the loo. Now, I'm something of an expert on marine plumbing. There was a national championship for retrieving small change from round the bend. I'd be up there collecting the gold medal. But I had never attacked a lavac before, and the prospect of starting a race without at least persuading it to dispose of its contents didn't bear thinking about. Do you know how to get at the pump? I asked the skipper of eight on the boat next door. He had no idea. His loo was serviced by the yard, he said which I suppose is the difference between racing and cruising skippers. Then Bill discovered the sight gauge on the fuel tank. 
We'd been looking for this ever since we ran out of water and wondered if there really was plenty in the tanks. There wasn't, or at least the site gate was empty. The start was at 0930. The fueling berth opened at 0900. We were still pulling up sails at the 10-minute gun. In fact, what with one thing and another, we never did go through the starting gate. I remember seeing a distinguished-looking old gentleman in a blazer and club tie sitting in a motorboat looking the other way, but I seemed to have other things on my mind at the time. One of these was the peculiar habit racing boats have of turning round the moment you let go of the tiller. On Largo, you can let go of the tiller, take a walk around the deck, and still find her pointing in the same direction when you get back. It had simply never occurred to me that in proper racing boats the helmsman is not supposed to let go of the tiller, let alone join in the hunt for the main halyard. Suddenly a crew of three didn't seem so many after all. It was a wonder, really, that we started at all. But when the gun went, there we were in the middle of everything with spinnakers cracking all around us while we waited for all the fuss to die down before setting our own. It was sensible. Strange boat, small crew, and anyway, it wasn't as if we were trying to win. The owner, appearing in a speedboat off Limington, seemed not to appreciate this. He made the sort of gestures racing yachtsmen make to each other, but the only effect of this was that the spinnaker wrapped itself round the forestay. It was all turning into a disaster. We ripped the spinnaker, missed the tide, and even Woodgates, who had long since abandoned his speech, suggested this was all getting rather silly. That night, as the rest of the fleet charged up and down the channel, we sat in the Pier Views restaurant holding a morose post-mortem. I distinctly remember saying that I was a rotten skipper. I lacked the quality of leadership, I said. Even at school, they'd never made me a prefect. Woodgates blamed the six missing crew, who could have had a winch apiece, and spent many happy hours unwrapping spinnakers. And Bill blamed the strange boat, as he said, By the time we got back to cows, we were actually making it go rather fast. He was right, of course, and the man at Rourke was right when he insisted on two qualifying races. The fact is that it doesn't matter how many exotic pilot books you have above the chart table or how many famous names you can drop. What makes the difference between the competent racing crew and those who really shouldn't be allowed near the start are the things that we all take for granted on our own boats, like how to get the plumbing apart and whether you've got a topping lift. <coughs> And there you are. And don't forget that the Good Stuff books, 1 and 2, are available on Audible. And that's it for this time. Don't forget that the podcast is free. But if you'd like to buy me a beer, you can always do that on the blog, which is always there at oldmansailing.com. <laughs>